John chapter number 4. Well, we are working our way through our theme uh, rooted in Christ this year. All year long, we worked on preparing, clearing the way, preparing the way so that you could produce for the Lord and be a productive Christian. We've talked about the um, farmer, the gardener, the husbandman that walks into the field year after year and looks at a tree that's meant to bear fruit with no fruit and how that tree is nothing more than just a disappointment to the gardener, to the farmer, to the husbandman. God has not called us just to look pretty. He's not called us just to take up space on the earth. If He saved you, He created you unto good works, and He wants you to produce. And so, uh, this, um, uh, this morning, we looked at the sixth of nine fruits God's Spirit is supposed to uh, bear in us and through us. We looked at the fruit of God's goodness how that is given to us and how we're to uh, not only bask in His goodness, but share the goodness of God. So in the morning, we're looking at the the fruits of the Spirit being uh, made evident through our lives as we submit and yield and follow His leading and, and allow Him to call the shots. In the evening, we're looking at this theme of persuading for the Savior. And we've said that a fruit, when you cut it open, there are seeds inside that produce more of the same fruit. And Christian, you are to produce other Christians and you are to make disciples of Christ. And um, uh, let's see, Brother John yesterday made the point that we must, we must uh, uh, follow God while we're leading others. And so it's a follow me as I follow Christ. One person put it this way. They said, everybody needs a Paul and everybody needs a Timothy. What's that mean? Uh, uh, Timothy followed Paul's leading. As the Lord was leading Paul, Paul turned around and led Timothy. But not only does everybody need a Paul to lead them, everybody needs a Timothy that they are leading. So who is the Paul in your life and who is the Timothy in your life? And as we have looked at this thought of persuading for the Savior, we've looked at casting the seeds of the gospel and We've looked at um, uh, we've looked at uh, watering the seeds or cultivating the seeds. Tonight we're going to look at another aspect of this. I believe a very exciting aspect of it, and just help us all to see uh, the process God's looking to work in the salvation of the souls of men around us. John chapter four. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, verse thirty-three down through verse number thirty-eight. Those that can stand, please do. It says, "Therefore said the disciples one to another." Hath any man brought him to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white, already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal." that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap, that whereon ye bestowed no labor, other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. The title of the message this evening is this, Reaping the Harvest. Reaping the Harvest. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us as we look at a very important truth And help us to get a fresh perspective, Lord, on uh, just the world around us. And the problem with these disciples is that they were not focused. They were not looking at the field right in front of them. They could not see the harvest of souls that was awaiting them. Their mind was on the material and they missed, they were missing what you wanted them to be looking at. And so, Lord, help us to be able to focus in and see and be burdened by the harvest of souls that await us right outside the doors of this church. And Lord, help us to be a testimony for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, if you're a farmer, for months and sometimes even years, you head out into uh, the, the property that you own, and what do you do? Well, you prepare the field. You enrich the soil, you plant the seeds, you, you pull weeds, you purge, you prune, uh, you protect the plant. Uh, sometimes that's with pesticides, uh, uh, but you're protecting the plant from bugs and diseases um, or tree. You protect the, the, the plant or tree for one purpose and for one 
purpose only, and that is to work toward the day of harvest. You are working toward the day where you walk out into your field or your orchard and you collect the fruit off of the vine, off of the plant, off of the tree. You are working for months, day, days, months, years for that purpose of coming to that moment of harvest. Now, if I, this guy right here, were to walk into a literal wheat field at harvest time, I'd be a little lost. What do I collect? What do I leave? Uh, what is ready? What isn't ready? I don't know how all that works. I'm not a wheat farmer. In fact, uh, uh, from a practical standpoint, I'm not a farmer at all. If you were to uh, inherit, if I were to inherit a farm, a fruit farm or vegetable farm, and you were to say to me, man, go in there and have at it. You're changing professions. You're now a farmer. I'm going to tell you in a couple of years, that farm would be gone. I wouldn't know anything about it. I've not lived my life. I've not prepared for that. However, a farm sees things a little bit different to a farmer to a farmer that walks out in that field he has invested his blood his sweat he's invested his tears uh, for harvest time and for him harvest time is a joyous time let me say that again for a farmer who has put in the work harvest time is a joyous time Yes, it's work, but he doesn't mind the work. His labor has been brought to material goods. Day after day, week after week, month after month, and in the case of some fruit trees, year after year, he has toiled, he has labored. I think of a farmer who is out in the field about the time that the, 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 that the frost is beginning to settle on, and if the frost lands on the crop, it's going to kill the crop of that tree, and so great measures are taken care of to ensure that the frost does not affect that fruit or that vegetable, and they are up all night night working during the coolest hours to keep the frost away. Oftentimes farmers will spray down a tree with water and keep a, a, a constant flow of water on that tree so that it cannot develop the frost or the ice that would kill that bud, that, 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 that seed that's budding out, that little flower that's budding out into a fruit. They do everything they can to protect it and bring it to the day of harvest. That for them, they walk out in that field and they see that peach tree, that apple tree. They see that fruit that's ripe and juicy and ready to be picked and sold at market. And what they see is a work of a labor of months and sometimes years of, of, of love. The harvest of souls, in the harvest of souls, I, I want you to really hear what I'm getting at here. God uses many different people. To bring a soul to harvest. God uses an array of situations. He uses an array of problems. He uses a, a, a plethora of pressures in order to bring a person to a place where they are ready to be harvested into the kingdom of God. Many of the people that are contributing factors will never meet each other. Will never meet each other. Many will never know the whole story of how someone got saved until they get to heaven. Yesterday, Pastor Mike and Brother Ben knocked on Mary Ann's door. And as Pastor Mike shared, Mary Ann was wide open to the gospel. And as she neared the end, she bowed her head and was very emotional about receiving Christ. Now, I don't know Mary Ann. I've never met her. But uh, I don't think I've ever met her. But can I just uh, uh, take a shot in the dark here at something? I'm going to guess... That Ben and Pastor Mike, they were not the first encounter Mary Ann has ever had with the gospel. I'm going to, I'm going to say that there were a whole lot of other people and a whole lot of other, uh, uh, factors that gave her the gospel and planted the seed and watered the seed. And that fruit had come to harvest and was on the vine. And it just so happened that Ben and, uh, Pastor Mike knocked on the door. And she was white unto harvest, ready to be reaped, ready to be collected 
into the kingdom of God. Do you understand that for Pastor Mike and for Brother Salinas, while they may rejoice over seeing her bow her head and get saved, please understand that in heaven, where the whole picture is seen, where all of the situation and all of the people and all of the pressures that have gone into bringing her, Mary and a harvest, they're much more so rejoicing over her salvation than any one person here could ever rejoice. Imagine a scenario where God uses dozens of people, uh, many life pressures, to bring a person to a place where they are ready to receive Christ. The angels in heaven are preparing the orchestra. The saints in heaven are getting ready to shout. Some relative who's gone on to glory gathers with her friends in heaven. God has brought this person along your path at the moment where they're ripe and ready uh, uh, to be collected into the harvest of the kingdom of God. And God brings them along your path. Are your eyes... On the harvest. Are your eyes looking at that soul as someone who may be ready to be saved? Now, Jesus dealt with a similar scenario uh, with his disciples and he used it as a teaching moment. Here they are, John 4, there, uh, John 4, 4. Uh, the Bible says, and he must needs go through Samaria. Well, uh, everyone else traveled around Samaria. Those of you going to church a long time, you know the story, right? Uh, normally they would travel around Samaria as to avoid the half-breed Jew Assyrian crowd. And they wanted to avoid them. They didn't want to give them their business and support the economic structure there. And they were very racist against the Samaritans. But Jesus didn't care about that. He knew that people living in Samaria had a soul that needed to be saved. And He knew he was going to go to the cross and die for them, just like he was the rest of the world. And so he traveled right up through Samaria. And I can see the disciples almost holding their noses as they're going through, rolling their eyes and giving Jesus a little bit of attitude about having to go into Samaria. Their whole life, mom and dad had taken them around Samaria. How dare Jesus walk through Samaria? And they get to Sychar's well and the disciples are thinking with their stomachs and off they head. Jesus has his eyes on the harvest. They come back with food. And uh, they want Jesus to eat, but Jesus has his eyes on the harvest. In fact, they ended up delayed there for several days as the people came running out of the city to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And a great harvest of souls took place. Why? Because Jesus had his eyes on an eternal harvest. His eyes were on the masses. His eyes were on those ready to receive the gospel. Jesus used this as a teaching moment for his disciples. Now, tonight, my intention is to not stand up here and belittle you or put you down if your eyes are not on the spiritual harvest. My intention tonight is to encourage you to take your eyes off the things that really don't matter and to begin to look at people as an eternal soul and then to show you and teach you how it is that you can draw the net. You can bring them on into the kingdom of God. You can help lead them and guide them through that process of putting their faith in Christ. So we're going to preach uh, the first three or four points of the sermon. And then when we get down uh, to the very end of the message, the sub points of the last point, I'm going to take a few minutes and I'm going to teach you how it is I go about drawing the net, leading someone through that last step of putting their faith in Christ. All right. You got your, you got your outlines there. You have that ready to go. Let's fill in the blanks. Look at four thoughts about this topic of reaping the harvest. Point number one tonight, noticed the field. The field. Look with me at John chapter 4 and verse number 35. John chapter 4 verse 35 says, Say ye not, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. Look on the fields, for they are white, all ready to harvest. Jesus is standing there probably by the well, and he's up maybe in a higher plane. And down down the hill, there is the city uh, where uh, the city of Samaria, where the lady had left her water pot and ran back into town. And between where Jesus stood and the city, there may have been wheat fields. And Jesus says, look on the fields. Look on the fields, for they are white already the harvest. And let me give you an A to be here. Letter A, notice the crops condition. The crops condition. Turn over with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Hold your place in John 4. Acts chapter 2 and verse number 41. The, the crops condition. 
Now, before we read verse 41, this is a verse I believe most of us here are familiar with. Uh, and I think most of us even immediately recognize the setting. Can you imagine if we, on friend day, had 3,000 visitors show up? That would be pretty awesome, right? We wouldn't be able to meet in this room. I'd probably have to put everybody in the parking lot, and I'd have to stand up on the roof and preach. Or we'd have to go flood the fields at Booth Park and, and, and get creative. All right, 3,000 people. It's a lot of folks. Now, there were more than 3,000 people there. That's just how many were saved. What happened? What brought about such a large harvest of souls? Look at verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Wow. Well, what brought this about? Again, I want you to think this through a little bit. Do you understand that this is the city that just crucified Jesus? This is the city that watched Jesus walk around and heal blind Bartimaeus right before he died and raise Lazarus from the dead. Within a couple of weeks of Jesus dying, uh, they had held up palm branches in the streets. The city had been divided, but many had flip-flopped on the issue of who Jesus was. Was he, was he, was he Lord? Was he a liar? Or was he a lunatic? Which was he? And different people landed in different camps. But when Jesus had risen from the dead and been seen around town by a whole lot of people and word was spreading that this man who is crucified by the chief priest, he's alive and he's risen. Do you understand how this softened hearts? Lazarus had been risen from the dead. Bartimaeus had been uh, given his sight. And, and Jesus, uh, here Jesus has risen from the dead himself and people who had been on the fence about Jesus, boy, the circumstances had punched them in the chest, and they were fruit that was ready for the harvest. And then Peter stands up, filled with the Spirit of God, and he preaches in his native tongue, and God takes his words and translates them into the into air. And Arabic is heard over here, and Spanish over here, and Italian over here, and French over here, and Portuguese over... There, there she is. And, uh, and what do you get? You get all of this and people are, and, and, and people are blown away by this and they can see the power of God. Their hearts have been tender. You know what the crop's condition was? It was ready. The circumstances of these people's lives had so softened them and tendered them and ripened them. The seeds had been planted by Jesus himself. They had been watered by the raising of Lazarus, the healing of blind Bartimaeus, the raising of Jesus from the dead. This crop, the condition was ready. It was right. Turn over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. Now we saw uh, the masses being saved. How about the individual? Well, God cares about the individual. Acts chapter 8. Look at verse number 34. And we here we have a eunuch from the country of Ethiopia. He's traveled by chariot all the way from uh, Ethiopia to Jerusalem to get a copy of the scrolls to try to figure out the truth. He's asked for help in Jerusalem. Nobody will help him. And so he's riding home through a desert place, a wilderness. God sends Philip to the middle of the wilderness to reap the harvest of this ripe soul that's ready for the kingdom of God. Look at verse 34. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this of himself or of some other man. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord called away Philip, uh, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. He went on his way rejoicing. You know what uh, this man's condition was? He was ready. His heart had been tender. Now again, I just want to tell you that uh, th- this that Philip, he got to pull the ripe peach off the tree, if you will, but he's not the one that ripened the fruit. The seeds of the gospel had been planted into his heart. The desire to find God and know the truth. Maybe stories of Jesus had made its way into Ethiopia. He was hungry to find the truth. He had worked himself. God had used pressures and people and circumstances to work him to a place where he was ready to be saved. And along came Philip to reap the harvest. 
the crops casualties, letter B, the crops casualties. Turn over to Romans chapter 10. Here's the, maybe the hardest truth that I can tell you that's in the Bible. There are people who will die and go to hell, and the only reason why they will die and go to hell is because nobody ever told them about the truth. I wonder, I wonder at the throne room of God, when these folks are being judged, I wonder how many people are going to have to be tossed into hell because some Christian didn't do his job. Some soul was ready to hear the gospel. But that soul winner, that Christian, that, that, that person who's supposed to be a soul winner, their eyes weren't on the harvest. You say, well, pastor, will God really send somebody to hell who is, who is sincere? The old saying is, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. How many people that live in a distant land, how many people that live across the street would have put their faith and trust in Christ? If somebody would just take the time to tell them. Boy, they're ready. It isn't that you have to go twist their arm behind their back and, you know, force them into a sinner's prayer. They're ready. They just don't know. And if you would tell them, they would receive Christ. Look at Romans chapter 10, look at verse 13. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings... Of good things. It's a reference back to Isaiah 53.1. We live in Stratford. Or the church here is in Stratford. We live in the greater Stratford, greater Bridgeport, New Haven area. Someone want to tell me what the predominant religion is in this area? It's Catholic. You know the thing about Catholicism is that their Bible isn't too far off from ours. Now there's changes that are detrimental and deadly, and poisonous, and keep people from heaven. But you know what they believe? They believe in the virgin birth of Christ. They believe that Jesus is God, the Son of God. They believe in the Holy Trinity. They believe in a heaven and a hell. They believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of the world. Now, most Catholics that I meet... They're only a couple of little clarifications away from being able to be saved. You know what? They're walking down the wrong path, but they're not real far from being saved. Some people are intimidated to witness to a Catholic. I'm thankful every time I meet a Catholic who's willing to listen to me give them the gospel. Because there's a whole lot of groundwork I don't have to lay. There's a whole lot of groundwork that's already laid. I get to come in and take what they know and fix what they don't know. And I get to walk them down a path where they can put their faith in Jesus alone, who they already believe to be the Son of God, the perfect Son of God that died on the cross for the sins of the world. I get to go in and clarify what they don't know and get them to put their faith in Christ alone. It's a wonderful thing. Now, again, I'm not praising the Catholic Church. Don't take uh, my words out of context. But what I'm saying today is that there are people all over this town and they're confused. There are people all over this state that are, are, are almost there. There are people all over this world that if somebody would just walk up to them with a tear in the corner of their eye or at least a tear in their heart and open up the Bible and say, can I tell you how to make peace with God? They would open up their heart. They would open up their mind. They would listen to you. They would put their faith and trust in Christ. They would be saved. They would be uh, reaped in the harvest of the kingdom of heaven. But most Christians are not willing to do it. And so so many people are going to go to hell because there's not a preacher, a proclaimer, a soul winner who can effectively go and sit with them and tell them the gospel. The field. Jesus said, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are wide unto harvest. They're wide unto harvest. Number two, notice our focus. Look back at, uh, at John chapter 4, verse 35. 
John chapter 4, verse 35, I, I, uh, I do not envy our missionaries in the 1040 window. They go there and they're talking with people who've never heard of God. They don't know what a Bible is. They know who Jesus is in name only. But they don't really know who he is. They must lay down the groundwork. And their fields are a little less wide under harvest than ours are. Our focus. Look at verse 35 again. John chapter 4. It says, Say not ye there yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, look at these, this, the, in fact, let's read the next several words together. Ready? Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. Lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. Hey, disciples, your eyes are everywhere but on the souls of men. Your eyes and attention are on everything but the eternal condition of people. Letter A, notice, stomach versus souls. Stomach Versus souls. Now, this is an odd point, but I'm putting this point in here because it's true to the passage. Go back to John chapter 4, verse number 6. And I'm going to make a broader point here in a minute. John chapter 4, verse 6. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Let me pause here for a minute. You know what I get out of verse 6? Jesus is hungry, and Jesus is tired. And Jesus is thirsty. In fact, he's so thirsty, he's going to ask this lady in a minute for a drink of water because he was thirsty. Now, he was going to use that as a soul winning prop or illustration, but Jesus was just as weary as the disciples were. Look at verse 7. Then cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. Look at the parentheses in verse 8. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. You know where the disciples were? They were looking for a Burger King. They were looking for a McDonald's. They were looking for a burger. They were looking for a fish fry. They were looking for whatever it is they could find. Their bellies were groaning. Uh, skip down with me to verse number 31. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. Now, you got to give them credit. While they're there in the drive-thru, they say to the lady, uh, they say to each other, we need to order for the master as well. We better not come back and not have dinner for him too. Get him a quarter pounder with cheese and, and fries and or whatever it was and, and, uh, and bring that back. So they bring Jesus' meal back and Jesus has no interest in it. Verse 32, but he saith unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Uh, therefore, say the disciples one another, hath any man brought him ought to eat? Did someone swoop in and give him a meal when we weren't looking? Look at verse 35. Say not either yet uh, uh, four months, uh, and then cometh harvest. But I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white uh, already unto harvest. Jesus was saying, you, you, you all have your eyes on physical food. I have my eyes on the souls of men. I'm going to eat to sustain life. But my intention is not on my stomach. It's on the souls of others. Now, I don't know how many folks here today have such a love for food that they would walk past the soul. But I've got to say, we've probably all done it at some point, haven't we? How about this one? I'm just get uh, real practical with this point. You ever had your steak cooked wrong at a restaurant? We've all been there, right? Medium well, I've been out with people who like it rare or close to rare. And, you know, so red that, you know, it's still almost mooing on the plate. And um, uh, I like mine medium well with just a little bit of pink. My wife likes it like burnt to a crisp hockey puck, okay? Uh, well, 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 well done. And uh, uh, cook, cook all the oink out of it, all the, all the moo out of it, rather. Uh, that's how my wife enjoys it. And, uh, but we've all been there where our steak's been brought back wrong. Can I tell you a couple things to think about? First of all, it's, not, it's probably not your server's fault. Most servers do not cook the food. Well, let's just say that your server is doing double duty. They're taking the order and they're cooking the meat in the back. Uh, they deserve double tip if that's the case, okay? But they're doing double duty. Can I ask you a question? What's more important, your steak being right or her soul being in heaven? Oh, I have seen so many Christians I've gone out to eat with. How many times am I going to ask you to get this right? I've been out to eat with people who say, well, I only tip 18% if they can keep my cup from getting less than half full. What are you doing to that person? Do you understand they have a soul that needs Jesus? Do you understand that 
that you're not some king or queen that they're serving. They're working a job to pay their bills. And behind the apron and the name tag is an eternal soul that needs Jesus. Are you seeing a server? Are you seeing someone who's bussing tables? Are you seeing someone that's sitting people or, or, or opening or closing or running a door or valet parking? Are you seeing people? Are, are you more concerned about your stomach and a meal and, and, and whatever service that you get, a concierge service or the person behind the counter of the hotel? Or are you seeing a soul that needs Jesus that might be ready to be reaped for the harvest of the kingdom of heaven? Stomach versus souls. We get so focused on ourselves and our service and how people treat us and what makes me feel good and the comforts of life that we won't step outside of that to be concerned about the souls of others. Letter B, notice status in the world versus salvation of the world. Status of the world versus salvation of the world. Quickly turn over to Matthew chapter 19. Again, hold your place in John 4. Matthew chapter 19. And here we find the rich young ruler... Um, the rich young ruler coming to, to meet Jesus. This is a young man who's morally good and has a lot of money and has probably earned his money by his morality and doing things the right way. Look at Matthew chapter 19 and verse number 17. The Bible says, And he saith unto him, uh, back up to 16, And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Verse 17. And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So he's listing off the Ten Commandments, or at least a portion of the Ten Commandments. And look at verse 20. The young, the young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up, what lack I yet? Now, uh, what, what lack I yet? Now, I, I, I've heard people preach this or teach this and say, yeah, right, no one's perfect. Well, clearly no one's perfect. But this man, what I believe is he was sincere. I believe this man thought that he had kept all of these from his youth up. I don't think he had ever killed anyone. I think he was trying to be honest with the world around him. I think he was honoring his parents. I think he was loving other people around him, or at least being respectful on some level to them. I think he was sincere in that answer. Look at verse 21. Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. Jesus saying to them, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor. And thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know what this man, where he found his, his, his prestige in life? It was in his status. Boy, his neighbors, his family, his friends saw him as a good man. He had money in the bank. He had the comforts of life. He, uh, for, at least for the time of that day. He had status. And Jesus said, if you really want to be my disciple, you really want the kingdom of heaven, then go and sell everything you have. Give your riches to the poor and come and follow me. You know what he was more concerned about? He was more concerned about his status in the world than he was the salvation of the world. How about you tonight, Christian? Are we so concerned about what other people think about us at work, in our neighborhood, with our friends, with our family, that we're not willing to take a stand for Christ? Now, I want to be uh, crystal clear on this. I am not advocating that anybody go to work and beat people over the head with the Bible or take the Jesus stick out and, and beat people relentlessly. You need to be tactful. You need to be careful. You need to be appropriate. You need not abuse the wishes of your boss who's paying you. But by all means, you don't need to be a coward and a secret service Christian that runs away from your faith either. There is a balance that must be struck. And there must be a, a, a more of a desire to let people think that you're strange or a loser or weird in, in order to give them the gospel than to so protect your reputation in the world around you that we don't share the gospel. The disciples had lost their focus. They were looking at their stomachs. The rich man was concerned about his status. Let me let her see. Let's look at this familiar versus forever. Familiar uh, versus forever. Let her see. Familiar versus forever. What do I mean by this? Why is it most Christians are not willing to reap the harvest? 
Because their focus is wrong. Their focus is not on forever. I think it was two or three weeks ago I had said that if we could install an elevator in the church, a climate-controlled elevator that could withstand the elements, and each of us could climb into it and travel down into hell and be able to see the people in, in languish and torment there. And then uh, after just a few brief minutes, take that elevator back up into the church auditorium. We would probably step out of the doors of the elevator and and run with a handful of gospel tracts out into the street, out into the byways and highways and hedges, and we would compel everyone to the gospel of Jesus. Can I tell you if that elevator was able to go up all the way into heaven and you were able to just look through the window of the elevator and you were able to see the riches of eternity and you were able to see the perfection and the joy and the bliss and the euphoria and all that heaven has to offer and just look at it for five minutes and see uh, uh, all that's there, you'd come back down and you'd run right out into the highways and hedges with a handful of tracks and you would say, I don't care about what's familiar to me, I care about the eternal souls because 70, 80, 100 years, 120 years is so short compared to all of eternity. And in eternity, people are either going to be in bliss or in pain. They're either going to be blistered or in bliss. They're either going to be in uh, in heaven enjoying it or in hell uh, suffering forever. But we're not willing to step outside of our comfort zone. And Let me tell you about Jesus, how He's the only way to heaven, how that He'll Save your soul. That person next to you who's crying within their spirit for someone to tell them the truth. We're afraid. We're afraid to say anything to them because we may not know how to answer every question they have. So why would I open my mouth and share? And off they go, heading, inching closer and closer to hell. My friend, we can become so focused on what's familiar to us. That we lose sight of eternity. Don't do that. Those of you that are school students, you go to school. Can I tell you that the boys and girls, the teenage boys and girls, the elementary boys and girls that you go to school with, they need someone to be a bright light in that dark world. You stand up and you tell them about Jesus. Someone in your workplace, adult, needs you to be a bright, bright light in a dark world. Somebody in the neighborhood you live in, oh, the world is filled with pessimistic, negative people. They need you to be a bright light in the dark world and not just talk about the gospel, but share the gospel. Let's step out of what is comfortable for us, what is familiar to us, and let's focus on forever. Let, uh, number one, we looked at the field. Number two, our focus. Number three, notice our fruit. Our fruit. Go back to John chapter 4 and look with me at verse number 36. John chapter 4, verse 36. The Bible talks about the process here. The Bible says, And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. Notice letter A, our reaping. Our reaping. Look at verse 38. I sent you to reap. I sent you to reap. Underline those words in your Bible. God did not just send you forth to go. He sent you to reap. You say, well, pastor, I go and, you know, uh, I don't ever see someone, anyone saved. And, uh, but you know what? I'm going. Can I tell you verse 38 says that God wants you to reap. That means there ought to be people getting saved because of you. I want everyone, I'm not going to put anybody on the spot here, but I want everyone for a moment to just stop and ask themselves this question. When was the last time that I saw someone put their faith and trust in Christ? When was the last time that I opened my mouth with the gospel and saw somebody put their faith and trust in Christ? I'm going to give you a moment to think about that. Can you remember? Some of you don't remember because it's been that long. Christian, God sent you forth to reap. He sent you forth to reap. Now, guess what happens when we reap? When we reap, we rejoice. And we don't just rejoice ourselves. We rejoice with the whole entire process. 
the whole entire process. Brother Mike, I think that when I get to heaven, all of the people who gave the gospel to me, my parents, the Sunday school teachers, the Christian school teacher involved, um, uh, the various babysitters that my parents would put me with as a baby that would sing gospel songs to me and read little Bible stories to me, I think there may be a little crowd that gets together and they rejoice because they all had a portion in me getting saved. They're going to rejoice together. Brother Mike, somebody led you to the point of salvation. But there are a whole bunch of people that probably witnessed to you and prayed for you and planted the seed and watered the seed. And God brought that fruition of salvation in your life. And somebody was probably there the day that you got saved. And you know what? They're all going to get together in heaven. And they're all going to get to meet each other. And they're all going to rejoice. You know what heaven's going to do? It's going to reveal all of the moving parts that went into seeing each and every soul saved. And we're going to step back and go, wow, that was amazing. Our rejoicing, our reaping rather, and uh, letter B, our rejoicing. I I, uh, got them out of order here. Our reaping, our rejoicing. We reap the harvest. We rejoice over the harvest. Now you got to scratch out and write in and I mess that up. Our reaping, our rejoicing. I want to tell a story here, and then I'll move on to the final point, give you some uh, pointers, and then we'll, um, we'll call it a day. I, God is just so good to me. And sometimes he pulls back the curtain of eternity, and he lets me see behind the scenes. I guess about a year ago I shared this story. A year and a half ago I shared this story in church. Some of you, this will be uh, the second time that you've heard it. And if I've told you one-on-one, it might be the third or fourth time. That you've heard it. This story is my favorite at the moment, my favorite soul winning story. And here's the cool part about it I did not give out the gospel, and I was not there when the person got saved. But it is my favorite soul winning story. I was saved April 8th, 1988. April 8th, 1988. That, that date is important for the story. April 7th, 2018 was a Saturday. Friday night, uh, pillow talk with my wife. She says, hey, tomorrow I have this going on. And I signed the kids up uh, to do a, a project at Home Depot. And I know you have the sewing meeting at 10, but you can get there at 8.30 and you can do it with them and then go on to the church. And I said, I don't want to get up at 8.30 and take the kids. She said, I've already signed them up. Guess what? You're taking them. I rolled over and I went to sleep. Are you mad at me? Maybe. <laughs> The next morning, I get up, she went and did her thing, and I took the kids and put them in the car, and, and my grouchy self, I stopped at Dunkin' Donuts like every good Baptist does when he's grouchy, and got myself a cup of coffee to cheer up a little bit, and into Home Depot they went for the kids to make their birdhouses. By the way, those birdhouses never got used. Not a single bird ever flew in those birdhouses. Uh, but uh, there we were in Home Depot on a Saturday morning, and I am not feeling like a pastor, and I'm barely feeling like a Christian. And I'm standing there with my hot cup of coffee, and uh, April's like, Dad, can you help me put these nails in? And, okay, so I hammer the nails in, and um, I'm standing there, and, uh, you know, there's a bunch of kids, and there's a bunch of hammers and nails and, and a, a lot of noise, and, and I feel the Spirit of God say to my groggy, bad attitude self, He says to me, you see that guy over there, I want you to go over and talk to him. Now, this is April 7th, April 7th, 2018, the day before I turned 30 in the Lord. And I said to the Lord in my spirit, I said, I don't want to. And God said, no, 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 I want you to go over there and talk to him. And he's standing next to his wife. And I, and I said, look, I'm a pastor all the time. Can you, can't you just give me a day off? I'm tired. I'm grouchy. I, I don't want to be here. My kids are building birdhouses, and April's over there painting it green and pink. I mean, for crying out loud, it doesn't even look good. And here I am, and I don't want to be here. And God says, God says, you need to go over and talk to the guy. And so finally, after about five minutes of wrestling with the Lord on it, I walked over and I start talking to this guy. His wife leaves and goes to the other side to talk to some of the ladies. And, and at first, his answers are abrupt and cold and short. But slowly, surely, that wall started to come down. And we began to just talk about cars. We're talking about things that I don't even know what I'm talking about. And I'm sort of pretending like I know and I don't know. And, and uh, But we're having a back-and-forth conversation. I'm just being nice to him. And finally about five minutes in, ten minutes in, he looks at me and says, well, what do you do? 
And I said to him, I said, well, I pastor a church in the area, and my family moved up here just, you know, a couple of years ago so I could pastor a church in Stratford. He said, well, what's the name of your church? And I told him, and, and he said, yeah, my wife's been after me to go to church for years. I used to go, and, and uh, I, just, I just really don't uh, see uh, the, the need. And I said, well, listen, there's a lot of good things from going to church, and, and if you don't come to my church, you ought to go to church and go to a church that, that preaches uh, that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And and uh, I didn't have a gospel track on me, shame on me, I should have and I didn't, but I was able to tell him about our church and the website and whatnot, and the kids finished their birdhouses and, and off we went. Well, uh, the next, uh, let's see, uh, Sunday came and, and some events happened with him and he called the church and left me a voicemail that I didn't get until Monday. So now we're on April 9th. 2018. He called the church on April, or 2018. He called the church on April 8th, 2018, my 30th spiritual birthday. And he's broken up on the phone. He says, here's my cell number. Call me. So I call him on Monday, and here is what he told me. This fits the sermon perfectly. He said, you walked away from that, that conversation, and God used you to show me the love, his love. He said, you didn't pressure me. You didn't belittle me over my sin. You didn't put me down. You just talked to me like I was a regular person, like you genuinely cared. And he said, you shared with me the love of God. He said, when you walked away, my daughter, who couldn't have heard the other conversation, she was on the other side of where the hammers were. She walked up to me and she said to me, his, his nine or ten year old daughter, she said, Dad, that man was a pastor, wasn't he? And he looked at her and he thought, there's no way you could have known that. There's too much noise for you to hear our conversation. She said, that man was a pastor, wasn't he? And dad looked at her and said, yes, he was. And she looked up at him and she said, see, dad, there is a God. He, he told me on the phone, he said, I climbed in my car the next day with my family. And for the first time in my married life, I went to church with my family. He said, at the end of the service, I walked down to the front and I sat on the front pew with the pastor and he told me that I was a sinner. He told me that I deserved to go to hell for my sin. He told me that Jesus Christ had died. He said, yesterday I bowed my head and I asked Jesus Christ to save me. It's a pretty good gift for your 30th spiritual birthday, isn't it? You know what I didn't do? I didn't witness. I didn't open up a New Testament and walk him down the Romans road. But I obeyed. I obeyed the leading of the Spirit of God. You know what's going to happen when I get to heaven? I'm going to stand in a corner with his wife who spent hours and hours on her face praying for her husband's salvation. I'm going to stand in a corner somewhere in heaven with his children. I'm going to stand in the corner with uh, uh, other people in his life who planted and watered seeds. And we're all going to jump up and down and rejoice that that man's soul was brought to harvest and he got saved. Christian, tonight, are you bearing fruit? Are you part of the process? Are you, are you filled with the Spirit of God? Are you re- reaping the harvest? Are you out gathering the fruit of the souls of men as they become ready? Are you looking? Are you searching? And are you rejoicing? Number four, lastly, notice our finish. Go back to John chapter four and verse number 35. Oh, this verse has, or rather verse 34. This verse has so much in it. Look at verse 34. It says, Jesus saith unto him, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. Now, if the verse had stopped there, it would have felt natural. But a very peculiar phrase got tagged in on the end of the verse. Look there. And to finish his work. And to finish. Finish his work. One of my favorite things about my dad, looking back, I didn't enjoy it then looking back, I love this about my dad. My dad would give us a job to do, and we'd do it about 80% of the way, 80% proficiency. And my dad would walk in and say, you didn't get it done. And then he would look at us and he'd say this, he'd say, finish the job, finish the job. I can't tell you how many times in my 18 years of life living at home, I heard my dad tell me or one of my siblings, finish the job. Jesus said, look, I have a work for the Lord to do and I must finish what I start. It isn't just enough to give someone the gospel. If they're ready to receive Christ, we must bring them to a place of salvation. 
Now, let me give you some pointers here on how to do that. Letter A, lead, don't lecture. Lead, don't lecture. Now, early on in my soul winning uh, years, I would go out. And if this is where you are, it's okay. All right, I'm not uh, beating anybody up. By the way, being a good soul winner takes practice, and there's a learning curve to it. Brother Eric, can you stand up for a minute? I'm not going to embarrass you in anywhere. I just want you to come come over here for a minute. I'd approach someone like Eric on the street, and I'd get into the gospel, and here's how it would go. It would be about 20 minutes of me lecturing him about how he's a sinner, about how he's going to hell, about how Jesus died for him, and how he needs, he must pray this prayer. I was not engaging with him. I was not looking to understand him. I was looking to lecture to him on how to be saved. Now, can God use that to see someone get saved? Yes, he can. Yes, he can. But you know what you find with Jesus? If you read through the Gospel of John, Jesus didn't lecture people. He conversed with people. He found out where they were. He got to know them as a person, and he gently led them to a point of decision. He did not lecture them. He led them through that process. My friend, I'm going to tell you this, that the only way you're going to learn how to do that is by getting out into the highways and hedges and working it. You may begin lecturing, but as you grow in your ability to share your faith, you must be very good at listening To them and understanding where they are. If you go back to John 4 and you look at his witness with the lady, the woman at the well, she tries to bring up her religious deeds and and, and religious questions. And Jesus just sidesteps the question and brings it back to her. Her need to be saved. Lead, don't lecture. When you're talking with someone, they want to know that you're concerned about them. How do you do that? Well, look, make eye contact. Do you enjoy talking to someone that will never look you in the eye? I don't really particularly care for it. Look them in the eye. Show them you love them with the way that you look at them. And, and, and I mean that in, in the most proper way possible. But there needs to be that compassion you have for their soul coming from you. And you're looking into the window of their soul, their eyeballs. And you're looking at them and you're trying to understand where they are. So you can lead them to the point of, of, of salvation and being ready. Thank you for that, Eric. Lead, but don't lecture. Letter B. Let her be, love them where they are. Love them where they are. You get a lot further with someone in 10 minutes telling them, or show, you, you'll, if you, you'll get further with someone in 10 minutes of caring about them than you will 10 years getting them to care about you. 10 minutes, just show them that you care about them. You're sitting there in the lobby of Firestone waiting on your car repair to finish up. And you're, you're perusing social media or you're watching Mari on the TV or whatever it is that's going on there. And uh, you're, you're, you're wasting time. And God puts someone in that, that, that waiting room, that doctor's office. Nobody likes waiting in the doctor's office. But we all know if you're going to the doctor's office and you have a 2.30 appointment, you must be there at 2.30 or they'll skip you. But you're not going to be seen till 4. We all know that, right? Instead of sitting there getting all huffy about it, why don't you instead look for people to show the love of Christ to? Show the world that you love them. We don't, we don't lead people to the Lord so we can say, I got another one. I got another one. We lead people to the Lord so God can save their souls. Love them where they are. And lastly, let her see, notice, learn how to draw the net. Learn how to draw the net. Now, I've seen this, um, uh, tripped up a lot. So there's some methodology. Brother Eric, come back up here. I'm going to use you for a minute. Brother um, uh, Joe, can you send a microphone up here uh, for Brother Eric? Uh, Jason, if you could get that, or Kiara's going to run it up here. Uh, just, just run me a mic up here. And, uh, and just engage with me normally, okay? Don't, don't throw any atheism fastballs or curveballs at me, okay? Thank you very much. Okay, you, you hold that. All right. So I've given Eric here the gospel. I've gotten all the way through that he's a sinner, uh, I've explained to him that God punishes sin in hell. 
And that if he doesn't turn from his, uh, doesn't turn to Christ from his belief system, that's where he's going to go. I've explained to him that Jesus died on the cross for him and, and, and that Jesus is his ticket to heaven. I've gone through all of that with him. I've explained to him that he must believe with his heart. He must confess with his mouth the Lord Jesus, as Romans 10, 9 says. And now I want to lead him to a place where he'll put his faith and trust in Christ. I've seen a lot of people make this really awkward. Okay? How many of you here have ever made this really awkward for someone as you're trying to get them to get saved? My hand's up. I've done it. Okay? Especially if you've not done this very many times. So how do you draw the net? Uh, I'm going to give you a phrase. I'm going to say it a few times. You want to write this down. When I get down to the end and I know they understand, I know they get it, I know the Lord's working in their life, I'll ask them this question. If Jesus is willing to accept you just as you are a sinner, are you willing to accept him as he is and let him be your savior? Let me say that again. If Jesus is willing to accept you the way you are as a sinner, are you willing to accept him the way he is and let him be your savior? You can write some version of that question down if you'd like. Now, I, I look him in the eye. I don't use some salesmanship tactic. I don't ask him that and say, would you do that? Would you do that? I don't want to pressure him into a yes. I'm going to ask him, and I'm going to look right into his eyeballs, or right into, if it was a woman, her eyeballs. I'm going to look right into his eyeballs, and I want to see that that yes comes from someone who understands what they're doing. He is going to choose Christ. So let me show you how this works, okay? You can answer the question here. Eric, uh, I've showed you in the Word of God that you're a sinner and that God punishes sin in hell. Do you understand that? Yes. I've showed you that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. He came and died in your place. He, he, he died so that you don't have to die. Then he rose again from the dead, defeating death, and he offers to you eternal life, but he requires your faith. And all you have to do is call on him with a heart of faith, and he'll, re- he'll receive you in, into his family, give you that gift. Eric, I want to ask you a question. This is the most important question anyone will ever ask you. I'm not using hyperbole just to be sensational. This really is the most important question you'll ever be asked. Eric, if God will accept you exactly the way you are as a sinner, are you willing to accept him the way he is? Are you willing to let him be your savior? Yes. Now, once he says yes, I'm not going to ask him any more questions. He has told me he wants... To be saved. He has told me he's ready. Now I'm going to lead him through the process. Lead him through the process. I've, I've seen people ask and ask and ask and ask right here. And at some point they're like, oh, I don't, now I don't know what I want to do. Okay? From there, I'm going to tell them, I'm going to say, Eric, uh, uh, you need to call on the name of the Lord. But it's not a prayer. It's not some set of words. You must believe with your heart, and then you confess it with your mouth. Oftentimes, I'll take them to Romans 10, 9, and 10, and I'll show them, uh, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. Do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you? Yes. Do you believe that if you call on him with a heart of faith, he'll uh, forgive your sins and give you a home in heaven? Yes. I'm going to help you to pray a prayer and put your faith and trust in Christ. I'm going to help you to do that. Uh, let me see your, your left hand there. Are you wearing a wedding ring? Very good. How many years have you been married? Uh, Hold that mic up a little bit for me. Under one. Under one. So you're newlywed. All right. Who married you? Must have been one handsome guy. Um, that was me, in case you don't know. Um, uh, just under a year. So on your wedding day, you stood there at an altar and you repeated vowels after a preacher to your bride. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. Was it the vowels that married you or was it the love behind the vowels that married you? The love behind the vowels. Correct, but they're both important. If you love her, but you're not willing to express it, what good is that love? And if you are willing to express it, but there's no love there, what good are the vows? They're both important. Now, the Bible says we're to call on his name, but God's not just looking at your prayer. He's looking at your heart. He's looking for there not to be love, but faith and trust. You're trusting him. That he's your one way to heaven. Now, just like you repeated after a preacher to be married, I would like to lead you in a prayer and help you express your faith in Christ to take your sins away. However, God's not looking for empty words. 
He wants to know that you mean them here. There's no magical set of words. It's an expression of trust in Christ. Eric, can I, I'm going to lead you through that prayer right now and, and help you to put your faith and trust in Christ. Can, can we do that? Yes. Let's bow our head. Just repeat after me. Say, dear Jesus, dear Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know that my sin is wrong. I know that my sin is wrong. And I deserve to go to hell. And I deserve to go to hell. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Come into my heart. Come into my heart. And give me the gift of eternal life. And give me the gift of eternal life. I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in you. And you alone. And you alone. As my way to heaven. As my way to heaven. I'm putting no faith in my good works. I'm putting no faith in my good works. But in Jesus only. But in Jesus only. Take me to heaven. Take me to heaven. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, did you mean that? Yes, sir. Did you mean it from here? Yes, sir. You called on the Lord from here. It's about time, you sorry rascal, you got saved. We've been waiting this day for a long time. Mark it down on um, uh, September 29th, 2019. Eric finally got saved. Thank you, Eric. You can take a seat. Maggie, you're no longer in an unequally yoked marriage over there. All right. Learn how to draw the net. Now, again, this takes practice. That may be intimidating to you. You say, well, how do I learn? Practice. Practice with someone who's already saved. Practice in the mirror. Go out soul winning and watch other people do it. You don't have to just use my tactic. There are other tactics out there. But at the end of the day, you want to lead them to a place where the Lord can save them. And you can reap the harvest and rejoice with others that are part of the process. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Lord, would you work on our hearts tonight? Help us to see the importance of this. We'll move into talking about a different uh, aspect of the Great Commission next week. But Lord, help us not to take this lightly. Lord, this is a command for every believer, every Christian. So help us to do it with all our heart. And Lord, help us to be um, faithful at it. In Jesus' name.